Hello, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast about books, beauty, and music. So make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. Good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, good evening, or good night, depending on when you are listening. It is a sleepy, rainy Monday morning here in Oxford as I'm recording this podcast, and I thought there was no better way to begin this week for me than by starting our summer book club. It's becoming something of a tradition to have a summer book club here on Speaking with Joy. And by a tradition, I mean that I did it last year, the year after I started the podcast. (laughs) Uh, But I enjoyed it so much. Last summer, we read The Great Divorce, and it sparked many interesting conversations and questions and discussions. I felt like I learned so much uh, by reading your comments and your thoughts. It was funny because I had written my master's dissertation on it, but I feel like doing a discussion group opened up even more depth and interesting things, and I noticed things I hadn't noticed before. So I loved doing the the book club last year, and I had many of you say that you would like to do one again this summer, and as I'm going into a less structured summer, as summers always are, it kind of helps me to have a rooting and an anchor to be able to do something with you all throughout the summer. So I'm so excited to begin this summer's book club on Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton. Now, I explained a little bit about this book in the last episode, so go give that a listen if you want to. But I am so excited about this book because I both enjoy the ideas and the convictions that it presents, but it's also just a pleasure to read. Chesterton has this wonderful ability to both be lighthearted and funny and clever without being dishonest or being ironic. And that's something I really love about him because this really is his very sincere attempt to explain how he came to believe in Christianity. So this week we will be exploring the first chapter, which is the introduction called In Defense of Everything Else. But before I dive in too much, let me give you kind of the way to um, engage with the Summer Book Club. The first thing is that you can go and get the book uh, if you don't already have it. I have a link to an Amazon copy that's pretty good in my show notes, or there's also Project Gutenberg, which is a website that puts up documents of public domain books, so they're free. So you can go get that for free um, as a PDF online. And I actually did that and then I printed it out so I could scribble all over it. I have a copy of the book, but I wanted to be able to freely um, mark and annotate my copy. So I went and got the Project Gutenberg version and I printed it out and put it in a notebook. Well, it's not in a notebook yet, but it's going to be in a notebook soon. So I recommend that way of reading if that is what you fancy. So go get the book, and then the book is nine chapters, and we'll be doing one chapter every week. So we're starting with the first chapter this week. So if you want to, pause this podcast, go read the first chapter, and then dive in. And those will be, they're really pretty bite-sized chapters, so it shouldn't be too overwhelming. But I'll also try to give kind of a summary of each chapter as we go along just in case you you missed the last chapter or you didn't have a chance to read. Also, I would say about this book that it definitely does have a progression of thought, but if you miss one week and you think, oh, I'll get behind, maybe I shouldn't read this chapter, each chapter is kind of an essay in its own right. So if you miss a week, just go and read the next chapter that next week um, if it feels overwhelming to read both chapters because they're kind of self-contained. So get the book, read the chapter, and then every week I will do a podcast where I will summarize the chapter, kind of bring up some interesting things in it, try to add my own commentary and thoughts and research. 
And then I will open up discussion for all of you. And there's kind of four places where you can join in the discussion, put up questions, talk with other people about what you think about this book. And that is, you can go on my Facebook page. That's maybe the easiest place to be able to have discussions. My public Facebook page, Joy Clarkson. And there was a lot of confusion between this because I have a private one and a public one. Do the public one just because it's the easiest um, place and I'll put up discussion questions there. And um, so just look up Joy Clarkson on, on Facebook and follow the public page. Follow, not friend. Although I'd love to be friends with all of you, of course. So there's Facebook. You can also engage on Twitter. I'll probably be posting one question every week on Twitter, and I would love to see your thoughts and comments there. And then I will also be posting questions on Instagram. And then finally, uh, I'll also try to do the discussion bits on my Patreon, which many of you know about. I talked to you all about this last week. It's a way for you to support me and then also for me to, out of thankfulness, kind of post other fun things and secret things and playlists and secret podcasts for you as a thank you for keeping me going financially through my PhD and supporting the podcast, which I wouldn't be able to do as full-time as I do if you all didn't support me. So that's so wonderful, and I'm so thankful. Also, thank you. There was a spurt of you all who signed up last week after I talked about that, and that really meant a lot to me. So welcome. I'm excited to have you. All this to say, you could, I will also do discussion posts on Patreon so you can interact and discuss there. And I might do some little... Um, extra things too as they come up throughout the book, which I will post on Patreon. So those are kind of your four ways where you can discuss. It is Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and then the Patreon. One final thing is that if you wanted to get a kind of little primer to G.K. Chesterton, who of course wrote this book, I would suggest going back and giving a listen to the episode I believe I called it The Wisdom of Whimsy, which he is one of the key people in that. So you might want to go back and give that a listen because I think it'll kind of give a context for the rest of this book. So those are all your detaily things to set you up for the book club. I also want to um, encourage you to do this with a friend. Find one person or invite a few friends over, make cookies, have a dinner, do something easy, but do it with a friend. I think that one of the best ways to cultivate friendships is to do things with people. Of course, I hope you all know that I am quite an encourager of friendship. I even wrote a book about it this spring, Girls Club. Um, although, of course, boys can have clubs as well. Um, and one of the things I talked about is I think a lot of times when we struggle or desire friendship, we can kind of not know how to pursue it. And sometimes in that not knowing how to pursue it, we can put too much pressure on someone by kind of wanting to go out to them with coffee and then pour all of our souls out. And it's kind of like, how do you develop a friendship? There's this kind of awkward, how do we begin to become close? Um, how do we bridge that gap? And for me, one of the best ways to develop some of my closest friendships has by been doing things with people, whether that is a movie night uh, where you discuss movies or studying together. And I think that doing a book club together is a low key, fun, easy thing to do, but that also knits your souls together as you think about deep, deep things and you look forward to seeing each other every week. So that is my pitch for let this be an excuse to you to read this with someone and food always entices people. So get or make some food, invite some friends over and read a chapter of Orthodoxy every week and discuss it together. I would be so very pleased if that is what came out of this book club. All right, so we've got everything on the table. Um, those are all your details. Let us dive in to this delightful and strange book. Now, I thought that I would begin 
by reading this funny little section in the introduction because I think it kind of sets up what Chesterton is doing. So I'll read this, I'll give you kind of a summary of the chapter, and then we can dive into some of the ideas that come out of it. So just a few pages in, Chesterton writes this. I have often had a fancy for writing a romance about an English yachtsman who slightly miscalculated his course and discovered England under the impression that it was a new island in the South Seas. I always find, however, that I am either too busy or too lazy to write this fine work, so I may as well give it away for the purposes of a philosophical illustration. There will probably be a general impression that the man who landed, armed to the teeth and talking by signs, to plant the British flag on the barbaric temple, which turned out to be the pavilion of Brighton, felt rather a fool. I am not here concerned to deny that he looked a fool, but if you imagine that he felt a fool, or at any rate the sense of folly was his soul or his dominant emotion, then you have not studied with sufficient delicacy the rich romantic nature of the hero of this tale. His mistake was really a most enviable mistake, and he knew it if he was the man I take him for. What could be more delightful than to have in the same few minutes all the fascinating terrors of going abroad, combined with all the humane security of coming home again? What could be better to, than to have all the fun of discovering South Africa without the disgusting necessity of landing there? What could be more glorious than to brace oneself up to discover New South Wales, and then realize with a gush of happy tears that it was really Old South Wales? This at least seems to me the main problem for philosophers, and is, in a manner, the main problem of this book. How can we contrive to be at both, uh, both at once, astonished at the world and yet at home in it? How can this queer cosmic town with its many-legged citizens, with its monstrous and ancient lamps, how can this world give us at once the fascination of a strange town and the comfort and honor of being our own town? So I love that he begins the whole book with this story, because I think in many ways, this is kind of the story that he wants to tell us. He wants to tell us, as he says in the beginning, kind of how he came to believe what he believes and that he did his very best to come up with a great creed on his own, and then somehow kind of seems to have accidentally discovered Christianity. And I love this because it puts to bed the idea that when we really explore and think and put all of our critical faculties to trying to come up with a reasonable view of the world, uh, usually we think we have a little bit of fear in that process. We think, well, if we do this, surely we will set out and find something quite different, quite threatening to our, our familiar home beliefs. Perhaps if you were raised a Christian, you maybe had the fear that if you really, if you really pressed into Christianity, if you really thought about it very hard, you might end up finding that reality was something quite different. And this is a bit frightening. And it's interesting for Chesterton because Chesterton was not raised in a religious home. He was raised for the turn of the century, quite a progressive, open-minded uh, home where Christianity was not really his home country, so to speak. But it was the home country of his own country. It was the philosophical background. And this is a big part of what he argues in orthodoxy. It was the philosophical background of a lot of British culture. And what's wonderful about this whole story is that it's kind of a story of Chesterton having looked about himself in his early 20s when he experienced kind of some existential angst and thought, I need to come up with some kind of philosophy in life. And not coming at this at all, uh, trying to become a Christian. He, as we said, he came from a very secular background that wasn't in his, his mind as a place that he wanted to arrive. And he says that in one of the chapters, he says, I did try to found a heresy of my own. And when I tried to put the finishing touches to it, I discovered that it was orthodoxy. 
So there's this kind of sense that in exploring, in setting out to the strange unknown, and truly trying and putting our minds and our imaginations to the test, trying to find a philosophy that will make sense of life, uh, that we might be surprised in finding ourselves coming back to the old and well-worn paths of Christianity, although in new and fresh and exciting ways, uh, which is kind of that mixture of the romance of both coming home and discovering that home with new, fresh eyes because we saw them with the eyes of an explorer. And I think that sets the whole tone for this book. This is his endeavor. His endeavor is to try to describe how he came to believe in Christianity, but he came to believe in Christianity as an explorer, not as someone trying to defend it. And I think that sets the tone, and it sets the tone also for his desire to find a description of reality which is compelling and colorful, and which sees the world for all of its tensions and oddities and strangeness. So I thought that would be a, a good way to begin kind of the tone of what this whole book is trying to do. He's trying to discover, a com he's trying to d explain how he came to believe what he believed. So before I get into that, let me just kind of summarize what's happening in this chapter. So the first thing um, that I will say is we'll kind of start off with this question. Why is Chesterton writing this book? And why is he writing it in this particular way, um, in this kind of form of a story? And I'm flipping through my Project Gutenberg um, thing. So the first thing we could say is that he writes the book because he likes writing books. He writes about his friend G.S. Street, who it's funny, I looked up G.S. Street, and I think he was an author, I think a playwright. And probably when Chesterton wrote this, he was very, very famous. But isn't it funny that uh, sometimes when books age, you can see the people that everyone thought would be famous for a long time aren't always people who actually end up being having that longevity of fame, which I think is interesting. It makes me wonder, what is it that makes somebody have a longevity of fame? Why are we still reading Chesterton, but not G.S. Street? Or for that matter, because I guess this would be more in his line, why are we still reading George Bernard Shaw, but not G.S. Street? So G.S. Street um, kind of provokes him and says, I, uh, he's written a critique of, of or a criticism rather, of G.S. Street. And G.S. Street rather flippantly puts him off and says, I will begin to worry about my philosophy when Mr. Chesterton has given his. And Chesterton says, it was perhaps an incautious suggestion to make to a person only too ready to write books upon the feeblest provocation. And I always like this, this passage. It reminds me of me with podcasts, actually. It is incautious to suggest that I ever do a podcast because I will do it upon the feeblest prov provocation. Um, but Chesterton really was a prolific writer. And they say he used to, I remember reading a biography Brits that he wrote, he, you know, they would have these white kind of stiff starched sleeves. And sometimes if he didn't have a notebook, he would take out his pencil and write things down in his sleeves because he was such a kind of prolific, strange writer. So he wrote the book because he wanted to write books and he enjoyed writing them. Um, but also because he had been asked to risk asserting his own philosophy. So it seems that up to this point, Chesterton has had kind of a bit of the problem of the debater which is that he has become very skilled at taking down other people's philosophies, but he's been very shy about asserting his own. And so as Mr. Street has challenged him, Chesterton decides to try to, out of fairness and out of being a good sport, present his own philosophy, to present essentially why he is a Christian. This is funny. It reminded me recently of meeting with my advisor um, because I had just written this chapter that was kind of a methodological chapter, which means that it's me choosing how I will set about doing my, my PhD, kind of the theoretical side behind it. And as a part of that, I had kind of 
gone through three different other authors and how they approach this topic. And as one does in scholarship, I had kind of uh, provided some criticisms. Um, and <laughs> when I met with my advisor, he said, you know, when I was reading your criticisms, I thought, well, these are very good, but I'm worried that you won't actually be able to make your own theory to rush to the end. I did make my own theory and he was very pleased with it and it was fine. But I think this is oftentimes a great danger, which is that if you are a thinker, or uh, when I did debate, this was the easiest thing. It's very easy to pick apart other people's cases without actually having a compelling case of your own. And particularly if you are a devil's advocate kind of personality, it can be very easy to run around knocking down everyone else's ideological towers without building any of your own. Um, and so this is where Chesterton has found himself. And so he decides that he must, as a good sport that he is, and he was a very good sport, he was famous for having kind of a a merry, not rivalry, but a merry constant argumentative friendship with George Bernard Shaw, who of course was uh, a very vehement atheist. Um, but they had, a, they had a really close friendship and they argued all the time. And that friendship was kind of based on a good-hearted, good-willed uh, willingness to engage, to, to combat, to discuss. And so out of that own spirit, he decides to write this book in an attempt to show what he believes and how he came to believe it. And in this, he says that he wishes to show that this philosophy is not his own philosophy. He says it kind of, he's been asked to show his own philosophy, to show his cards, but he wants to kind of emphasize that what he's eventually come to is not something that he's created on his own. He has not discovered New South Wales. He, just, he has discovered Old South Wales. And he has this wonderful line where he says, I will not call it my philosophy, for I did not make it. God and humanity made it, and it made me. So there's this desire for him to kind of, where he articulates coming to Christianity over and over again as a sense of discovery. Um, so it's not the sense of building an argument, but it's a sense of having discovered um, and been made by something. Also, fun fact, if any of you all are Rich Mullins fans, who is one of my very favorite artists, I don't know why I've never talked about him on the podcast. I will have to do that soon. But Rich Mullins has this wonderful song called Creed, which is, as it sounds, uh, the Nicene Creed, beautifully put to um, Hammer Dulcimer music. And he says the creed, but then in the choruses, he has this wonderful little section where he says, I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God, not the invention of any man. And he actually took this from orthodoxy. So it's a fun little crossover to know that Rich Mullins is reading orthodoxy. And we met with an artist called Carolyn Ahrens. Um, you might know her song, what's it called? Seize the Day from the early 90s or early 2000s. Uh, but she used to tour with, with Rich Mullins and she said that he was so enthusiastic when he read Chesterton and he was like, have you read this? This stuff is amazing. So that's just my little fun fact about this is that Rich Mullins read and enjoyed Orthodoxy and stole this line for the chorus of Creed. So anyway, to get back to this, um, there is this sense that what he is presenting in this, in this book is not so much just a, it's not so much him building an argument for Christianity, but is rather the story of him discovering Christianity. And this is a theme over and over again. So what I, what I really love about this is that he's not then engaging in a work of apologetics in the sense that he's not providing a defense of Christianity, although he does provide many kind of strong, helpful, um, and very good arguments for Christianity. It's less of that stance. He's not trying to pick doctrines and be like, this is why I believe this. 
He's trying to say, this is how I came to discover, to be satisfied. That's a word he uses over and over again. Satisfied with the overall picture of reality that Christianity paints. And I think there's something really compelling in approaching our faith and also approaching defending why we believe what we believe in this way. And so for him, kind of the way to describe this discovery then is in narrative form by kind of tracing what he calls, this is not an ecclesiastical treatise, but a sort of slovenly autobiography. So he kind of describes his process of experiencing the world and, and kind of drawing these conclusions about reality and then seeking ways to describe or define or, or explain why reality is this way. And that is kind of the form that this whole thing takes. And that is pretty much the opening chapter of this. He also takes a brief moment at the end of the chapter to clarify that he's doing sort of a mere Christianity thing. Although I should say that mere Christianity is doing a Chesterton thing because uh, Chesterton wrote this, I think, gosh, 45 years before Lewis did, um, not 45, 40 years before Lewis wrote mere Christianity. And actually Lewis, when people would ask him for apologetic resources, he would point them to Chesterton, particularly Chesterton's book, The Everlasting Man, which is a much denser, but also very good book, specifically on Jesus. So if you fancy deeper reading after this, go for that. So he says that he's doing a bit of a mere Christianity thing, which is that he's not going to um, explore the idea of authority. Um, Chesterton became an Anglican, and then I think about eight years afterwards converted to Roman Catholicism, but he kind of puts that question at bay for the moment and explores kind of the, the heart of Christianity even before it is expressed in the authority um, or the disputes over authority in the church. All right, so that is what we have in this chapter. I hope that gives you a bit of a summary and a few things to think about. I wanted to end today by kind of making three reflections on what I think he's doing, things that we can take away and think about. The first thing is that I think that Chesterton does a really good job of kind of making this distinction between Christianity making sense and Christianity being a sense-making thing. So let me describe what I mean by that. There are kind of two ways, I'm sure there's many other ways, but there's two ways that we could go about defending the intellectual integrity or even the imaginative integrity of Christianity. One of them is what you often see in in various, um, in various kind of apologetic endeavors. And apologetics can do both sides, but this is often the idea of presenting a problem or a case or an issue with a Christian doctrine or belief and then having us be able to say, no, actually, this is why this element of Christianity or this element of doctrine makes sense. So it's kind of in a, it's in this position of defending Christianity, of showing its intellectual integrity, and showing why things within it make sense. This sort of puts Christianity in some sense on the defensive, because it's from the perspective of, look at this vast wide world, how can Christianity um, account for this? So it's asking Christianity to account for this. The other attitude we might take is by looking at the vast wide world with all of its complexities and interest and say, how does Christianity make sense of this? And does it make sense of this in a more compelling way than other philosophies? So the making sense um, bit of Christianity would be, how does this element of Christianity make sense? Is it um, reasonable? Is it logically coherent? Does it have integrity? 
the sense-making capacity of Christianity would say, how does Christianity make sense of these experiences, these convictions, these enigmas that we experience in reality? And does its sense-making capacity work for us? Does it make it more compelling? Does it provide a better explanation of reality um, than any other philosophy? And really, I should say all worldviews kind of have both of these attitudes. One is defending why they believe what they believe, seeing the integrity in it, and the other would be their ability to make sense of the world around them. So let me give you kind of an example of what this would look like in an actual argument or debate. So we could look at this with the idea of the existence of God. So the ability for Christianity to make sense might say might be something like a defense of the existence of God based on the existence of moral law. So we might say that it seems that humans have this sense of moral law, which outpaces the demands of evolutionary biology, and that we build our argument from that to say, see, God exists, and this proves that Christianity makes sense in this way. We've defended um, our, we've defended this belief as being rational based on these principles, and we can see that that makes sense. The other side of this is that we could shift then, so that's kind of defensive side, right? That's saying, I have this belief, but this is why it's rational and makes sense and etc. The other side of that kind of attitude could be to do the sense-making thing, which is rather than look, starting with a doctrine, you're starting with saying, man, people in the world seem to have these principles, these ideas about morality uh, that seem to transcend merely evolutionary, materialistic demands of survival of the fittest and even of social psychology. How do we make sense of those things? What would be an explanation that seems to satisfy uh, our understanding of how the world works? And in this way, you would say, well, Christianity makes sense of it and give this explanation that people are all made in the image of God. If we were to suppose that people were all made in the image of God and that that's uh, written inside of us and um, that therefore to mar the image of God even if it would cause survival, all these things um, would be, would violate our internal law of our hearts. And because we know that we're made in the image of God, we have that written in our hearts. This might make sense of why um, we have these intuitions about morality that seem to transcend evolutionary biology. So rather than starting with the the assumption and then trying to kind of defend it, there's different ways of approaching it. Sense-making says, how do we make sense of the world as it is? And is Christianity a good mechanism for making sense of that world? So I hope that kind of distinction makes sense because to you, I have explained it all right. Maybe I haven't had enough coffee, um, but I hope that, that that makes sense because I think that this is kind of um, what what Chesterton is doing. Rather than starting this as a defense of the philosophy and going down on the doctrines and saying, this is why this one makes sense, and this is why this one makes sense, this is why this one makes sense, he begins this journey by saying, let's take a look at the world. Let's try to sketch reality in as vivid detail as we can. And then let's try to find something that is sense-making, that makes sense of this world. He's not beginning with a doctrine and then justifying why it makes sense. He's beginning with reality and then seeking something that makes sense of all of the beauty and paradox that we find in reality. And this is why he uses the language, particularly in that very little opening bit, of satisfaction. He says, it deals first with all of the writers, himself, own solitary and sincere speculations, and then with all the startling style in which they were suddenly satisfied by Christian theology. And so I think what we see here 
is that Chesterton is saying, I started by trying to take in the world and all of its wondrous ambiguity. And then I sought for something that made sense of these things, that satisfied, that was sufficient. There's this wonderful phrase that, uh, and he actually references John Henry Newman in here. Um, John Henry Newman was a author, a very prolific author and priest. He started the Oxford movement, which was uh, a kind of movement here that where Anglicans wanted to recover a sense of tradition and also a sense of social justice. And so they made these wonderful spaces. I study in some of them every day. Um, but then he actually eventually converted to Catholicism. But he he was a really wonderful apologetic writer. He He really stood for the intellectual foundations of the faith. But one of the things he talked about is that it's hard to know what will tip it into what will tip knowledge, what will tip us being argued with, what will tip us being convinced into belief. And one of the things he talks about is the illative sense, which is this way in which we can kind of have all these different factors that go into us saying, yes, this argument makes sense. I'm satisfied by it. He says that we're not always convinced just by a convincing argument. There's also senses in which we bring our intuitions, our experience our um, kind of pre-rational and subcognitive things to what makes us believe. And I think that this is what Chesterton's trying to do. He's trying to go beyond just presenting arguments and trying to say, what was it about Christianity that satisfied me? What, what was it about it that made sense of the things I already knew to be true about the world? Uh, and I really love that as an approach. I love that it's not coming from a place of defensiveness, but from open-eyed wonder, trying to look at the world as it is and say, what gives us the best ability to make sense of this world, rather than just making sure that whatever we make, whatever we believe makes sense. Uh, and I think this really is the truth, the, the stance that we should stand in towards truth. We don't want to stand kind of already in our corner with our doctrines, ready to be defensive. We want to stand saying, what is this wide world and what makes the most sense of it? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that he really emphasizes the idea that this is a story. It's his slovenly biography. It is not, as he says, he writes that this is not the story of whether Christian faith uh, can be believed, but of how he personally has come to believe it. And I think that this recognizes something, um, this kind of makes us recognize something that is really central, which is that belief is always embedded in narrative. I think in our modern world, we can sometimes have this very incorrect idea that people come to believe things in this very purely rationalistic way, uh, that we just kind of, we are presented with arguments and we agree with them. For one thing, I think people are really not, for the most part, that reasonable. Um, they don't, they don't approach things in quite that disinterested of a way. Um, but also, that's not even how we begin to realize things. Even when you think about thinking about something, um, that experience in itself is embedded in time. We start thinking about something, we have an experience, then we reflect on that experience. As we reflect on that experience, things begin to pop up and present themselves to us. We begin to try to make sense of those things together. And then we have this moment of realization. And I think that belief comes as this kind of this culmination and this moment of realization of things. And so when he's giving kind of the defense of why he believes what he believes, it makes sense that we embed that in, in a story, uh, because that's how we experience the process of, of questioning, of learning, of realizing, and then coming to believe. And um, it's funny, I've noticed this even when I try to explain my PhD to people. If I try to just explain them to them, the ideas that I'm presenting, 
I, it'll start sounding really obtuse and strange and it will sound strange even to me. And then I'll be like, what am I doing? Why am I writing this PhD? But if instead I say, if I tell them the story of how I became interested in the idea of inculcating affections in the character and how I began to connect that with art. And then I wondered how this had been uh, used as a tool to shape the character. If I start telling them the story, then the arguments that I make make much more sense. And I think that this is actually something that's really helpful for us, perhaps who are Christians or any of us, is to begin to start telling what we believe more in the context and frame of how we came to believe it and to engage with other people and their beliefs in that way. And this is not to say that there are not ideas or that we can't reason and have truth, but I think that oftentimes when we just say the extracted things, extracted from uh, the narrative and the process to which we came to believe these things, we will end up missing each other and we'll end up talking past and over each other because we're not getting to the heart of what was the process that led me to see these things, to have these reflections and to come to these conclusions. And what's also fun about this is that this is a rich tradition. The story, kind of telling the story of how someone came to believe something is something that is is rich in the literary tradition. Right now, in the study group that I go to on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, every morning we have morning prayer, and then we read a section of the confessions together. And that's been a really wonderful thing. We've, we've worked our way really through most of it at this point, and that's been really special. But the confessions uh, by Augustine who, of course, is one of the richest wells of knowledge for the Christian intellectual tradition. And the way that he chooses to talk about his conversion to Christianity is through the lens of a narrative. He tells how he and his youth um, kind of encountered the Manichees and then what it was about them that began to not make sense. And he tells his intellectual development within the frame of narrative. And I think that makes sense to all of us experientially. And I think that we should probe more into the fact that belief comes out of this narrative. It comes out of a, a slow process, a gradual revelation of, of things that make sense to us. And then, of course, this is also true for someone like Lewis, who wrote Surprised by Joy, kind of as his own intellectual biography, as a the process of how I came to believe and think the way I do. But I think that's a really interesting thing that we should all consider is would we be better communicators of what we believe and why we believe it if we told it embedded in the context of the story of how we came to these conclusions along the way, what experiences we had, what moments of realization we experienced? So that's the second thing, is this kind of sense in which he's telling the story of his belief. And then the final thing that I love about this, and that's a really central thing to Chesterton, is his desire to encounter the romance of reality. Chesterton, and this will become evident as we read this book, he loved being alive. He loved the world and all of its startling and diverse wondrousness. And he wanted to make sure that whatever he believed was never a reduction of reality to a creed that made it smaller. He wanted to really capture the experience of being the explorer and of experiencing the world anew. And this is a theme actually over and over again in, in Chesterton's writing is kind of a turning upside down of reality so that we experience it uh, with fresh eyes and realize how wondrous and strange it is. And I talk about this in The Wisdom of Whimsy. But there's this wonderful book that he wrote, a very strange little book called Man Alive. And I'm totally giving away the premise here. So if you don't want me to give away the premise, skip about 15 seconds ahead. 
But the premise of Man Alive is that it is a man who plants his wife in various places uh, so that he can, he can act like he is having an affair with his own wife so that he can experience her afresh for the first time. And he goes and he steals his own home. And he, he goes all around in these wild things because he wants to recapture that first moment of experience with how wonderful and good life is. And Chesterton has this kind of ability to do what uh, Alison Milbank writes is the making strange of the world. He makes strange the ordinary things of life so that we can encounter them afresh, so that we can understand them deeply. And then that we can come to our understanding and our view of reality from this posture of wonder and, and from this posture, of, as he articulates, of romance and that romance is this mixture between both being at home and recognizing home as the greatest frontier there could ever be. And I hope that reading this book this summer will be something that will help us open our eyes to the world that way, that it will help us re-encounter reality as a wondrous miracle and make our beliefs and our positions about the world and about God and about each other from that stance of wonder, from a stance that doesn't take things for granted. Well, I have babbled on much longer, actually, than I expected to babble on about Chesterton, um, but I hope that I've given you a few things to think about, the making sense versus the sense-making of Christianity, how our stories of belief sometimes present a more compelling understanding of how we came to believe what we believe, and how we could engage in that as Chesterton does as we explain ourselves to our friends in our life, and finally, the romance of reality, encountering reality with eyes that see it as fresh and pungent and given and wondrous. So I hope that you have enjoyed this first week. Next week, read the, um, the second chapter, which is a bit longer, of course, and is called The Maniac. It is exciting. It is good. It's a really fun chapter. Read that and then tune back in next week where we will have the same kind of ordeal. I will explain it and we will discuss it. And also make sure to go and discuss it with discuss this week's episode um, with other readers on my Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or on the Patreon. I wish you all well. I wish you a beautiful day, and I will talk to you all very soon. Happy reading!